female role models, especially in those higher positions, because of the lack of that makes women a little bit more complacent and just stay as what I like to call the worker bees. You find them in the smaller roles of accounts receivable, billing, their finance, they just don't grow as high as our male counterparts. So my overall advice would be go for it. The sky's the limit. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading accounts payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders of Modern Finance. My name is Ken Boyd. I'm a four-time author, including the book, Cost Accounting for Dummies. I'm a business writer, a former CPA, and I'm the content marketing manager at Stamply. And joining me today is Adama Ashwagu, the director of finance at Bylight. Adama, welcome. Thank you very much, Ken. Happy to be here. Good. We're so happy you're here. And I think we'll start if you could please tell us about what you do and your background. I am currently the director of finance for product controls at Bylight Technologies. My role is one that challenges abilities as a thought and strategy leader in the company and a liaison between our accounting department and our program management. I create a bridge since I understand both facets of the company. I am tasked with process improvement, automation, and an internal auditor of sorts within the company. I have worked in the government contracting space for about 20 years uh, and come with a wealth of experience in the different facets of uh, the accounting cycle. I started out while still in school, while others were at McDonald's. I chose to work an office job. Uh (laughs) And so I started out as an accounting clerk and quickly realized my love for numbers and the impact it had on the organization. So I just ran with it and grew within that organization. I grew into a cost analyst, Dimensions International. I was fortunate enough to have great mentors while working there who helped build my skill set in both the accounting side of things and the project side of things. I was with the company for quite a while. Dimensions International eventually got bought out by Honeywell because Honeywell was trying to break into the defense contracting space. And our team of 20 accountants, I was one of three that was retained to train the Honeywell group and continue on the work because we had the expertise and the software knowledge that was required. After leaving Honeywell, I spent about two years consulting to learn more about general accounting Mm -hmm. and eventually landed a position with PTFS where I stayed for quite a while and grew through the ranks. I started out as a senior accountant to a manager and when I eventually left, I was the controller of the company. That experience allowed me to touch on a full accounting cycle where I led a team when we did everything from the cradle to the grave. In addition to my accounting and finance role at PTFS, I I was able to expand on a skill set 
where I was able to advocate for employee satisfaction and retention. The organization was extremely diverse in, in personnel. However, we did pick up on a few disparities in certain areas. So I was able to also flex those muscles as well. Took time to research and study how other companies did things and try to implement it within the organization. And that led me to my current role where I am utilizing all those skill sets to make my uh, work environment a better place. Well, that's great. I I just read an article over the weekend that that the state of New York is going to start requiring salary ranges on any job posting. And apparently they're the first state to do it. And it's going to be, I don't know when they're implementing it, but it was in the journal this weekend. That was something that got my attention. It's a double-edged sword. I feel like we've seen it where you're going through an interview process and they ask you, well, what are you making now versus paying for the value of the work that they want to, that they're trying to hire for. So I, I think it's not a bad thing. I just noticed that it made me think about this conversation. So what is the structure of your accounting and finance department? How many folks are there and um, how does that work? So the accounting department is split up there. We have the billers and we each function as different entities mm-hmm. of sorts within the organization. So the accounting department has about 10 staff where some of them are billers. You have accounts receivable individuals. You have those that are focused primarily on the, on the bank rack and receivables because we do have a large volume because of the work that we do. And then there's the controller office where there are more senior level finance folks who do more of the reporting. So I guess I would call them more of the, they do a lot more of the reporting. And then there's my group who are the purely finance folks who do a lot of analysis and and liaise primarily with the projects versus the overall company overhead, GNA, and all that good stuff. Okay. You know, however, the leaders of these different factions, we always meet together and we still work together collectively every day, actually. Okay. Mm-hmm. Great. That's interesting. I looked at the I looked at the website and I went through it. Are you a, is it a privately held company? Yes, it is. It's privately held. Okay. Because yes. I wanted to ask that question. And it looked like a lot of the founders and senior people are former uh, military or at least former government employees. Yes, they are. Okay. And yeah, been friends for a while. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Let me keep going. You had, when we put questions together before the uh, podcast here, rolling out quite a few software tools in your career. How do you think about evaluating ROI for software tools? It depends on what the software is. And I think one of the examples I gave in our previous conversation was like a payroll tool. The company I came from and the current company I work with use ADP and different people use the capabilities of ADP in different ways. In my experience, it wasn't just a payroll tool. It was also a human resource tool. So how I would start things off before I even picked a tool was I would get together the stakeholders to understand their needs, to understand what's important. And there's no perfect tool out there or perfect software. And so we would, I would document what was most important to each individual and see if we could come to a compromise on what works best and what was a more viable 
software that would satisfy most people. Things that were of importance in the past were a performance module. The performance module, leave management is a huge, huge thing in the industry. Because I mean, employees are concerned about how um, their leave is being managed and if it's computed correctly. And then I mean, the payroll asset aspect of it as well was very important to us. Uh, the ease of which you could you could use the software in creating payroll run. One of the challenges that I definitely faced in that particular aspect was the connectivity between ADP and what our accounting and time and collection mm-hmm. capabilities, what the capabilities were. We I have primarily used Delta Cost Point and they are quite stingy with, <laughs> with their connectivity. They don't really love third parties in their program. So it was very important that I found a software that could easily connect in a cost-effective manner as well. And some of the softwares I've evaluated did not allow for that, and then some did. So those are some of the areas that I would look at in picking up a software. That's great. And it seems like as time goes on and technology gets more heavily used by accounting and finance, it's just a decision you've got to make more and more and more. Absolutely. Absolutely. Previously, when we spoke, you mentioned about women in finance. What has your experience been as a woman in finance and what advice would you give to others? The beginning of my journey was great because I had a fiery-headed CFO who, a lady, and she helped shape my initial thoughts going into finance. And she showed me, hey, I'm a woman. I'm here. You can fight the battle and you can do this if you wanted to do it. As I went on in my career, I fell complacent, like most women do, where we're afraid to speak up in the workplace. We're afraid to be as passionate as our counterparts, and we're afraid to go for it. Statistically, women in finance go for what they feel like they're already qualified for it. They check all the boxes while trying to grow in their career, while our counterparts statistically, would apply for a position that they are 30-40% matched for. And one of the advices I would give to fellow women is you can go for it. I think during our previous conversation, I said something silly like, think like a man, act like a lady. And in that aspect, I meant, please don't be afraid to go for it. I treat jobs now or my career as a continuous educational platform where it's okay to continue to be in a space where you're continually learning to continually grow. And that's one thing that I find that women are afraid of or don't know that they're, they should be able to do. And part of that is lack of role models in the industry since finance is a very male dominated industry. Maybe the lack of female role models or especially in those higher positions, because of the lack of that makes makes women a little bit more complacent and just and just stay as what I like to call the worker bees. You find them in the smaller roles of accounts receivable, billing, their finance, they just don't grow as fast or as high as our male counterparts. So my overall advice would be go for it. The sky's the limit. That's great. My my wife is a CFO, COO of a company, and she switched from working in finance for over 20 years, going to an interior design and build firm. She went from oh, wow. 95% man to now 
a business where it's 95% women? It's tough. It, it, it's oh. tough. You walk into a you walk into a boardroom and there's 15 males and you're right. two women. Exactly. It's, it's tough and it takes extremely tough skin. It takes when some women are overthinkers, I'm an overthinker. So I walk in and I'm like, ah, if I tell this, if I tell the gentleman this speaking, I disagree with his point of view and want to share my point of view of how to do things. I don't want to be seen as aggressive. I don't want to be seen as disagreeable. And quite honestly, there might not be that judgment, but somehow in some weird way, society has given us, has slowly implanted those thoughts in our heads and so we walk into a room and those thoughts are already there and it's time to unlearn some of those things and go for it that's a good phrase unlearning the behavior and speaking of hr hiring has been quite a challenge over the past couple of years and what have you been doing as a finance organization to try and recruit talent first i'm trying to retain my talent However, what I have done is try to stay knowledgeable about what the market is looking like. I try to make sure that when I put a rec out there that I'm coming in at a competitive rate. I try to spell out what the duties are and the expectations. I'm really careful when I'm interviewing people because we're no longer in a generation where people stay 30 years at a job, people stay two years and leave. But I I do look for that person who's willing to sit and learn for, for at least a year or two, because I'm worried about losing my historical data as well. Finance is a stable field. I think accountants are one of the last to get kicked out if anything is going on in the company, because you need someone to tell you that you don't have money. But it's especially been a challenge in the with the pandemic that we just faced, where people are even more reluctant to come into the office and you have C-suite execs that want people back into the office. So that has definitely created a challenge, but so far so good. That's great. It's funny. I've had several conversations with C-suite people in my community talking about how they want people back in the office and it's the very- world has changed. <laughs> Yeah, the world has changed. I'm not sure if that's ever we're ever going to get back to that in most companies. We have proven that we are able to function and function right. effectively outside right. of a four walls. I was interested in this comment too, that you're in a position where you get pitched software quite often. Yes. And how do you manage that incoming? How do you decide whether something's worthy of taking up your time in terms of new pitch software? As a user, I know where my frustrations lie in in the usability or capability of a software. And so if something comes along those lines, of course, I do have different things to look at, including cost and all of that stuff. Uh If something is not broken, I might be less reluctant to review a new product, but I... For the most part, I try to review at least one or two a year to make sure that I I have the latest software, especially as technology keeps on evolving. I want to make sure that I am moving in the direction of automation Mm -hmm. and process improvement. So if an initial presentation looks 
promises something along those lines, that would pique my interest. Okay. That's interesting because I think there's a temptation, I guess it's human nature, where if you get too stuck in your ways and you stop trying to do process improvement because it's not broken right in front of you and yet Mm -hmm. becoming more inefficient, that's an issue too. You mentioned managing the rollout of new software and tools. I'm looking at the notes from the prior conversation. You said if you try to give it 90 days you give it 90 days for testing purposes. You try to create testing groups. If you could talk about that, I thought that was interesting. Oh, you mean when rolling out a new software? Rolling out a new software, huh? Got it. Well, yeah, I like to know that it works. There, I've done huge data dumps where as soon as the consultants say, oh, it's it's ready to go, I open it up and I have an explosion of numbers that don't make any sense. Right. I have data that is just completely askew and... Sometimes it won't even open. So I try to roll it out in batches. For example, we did this huge upgrade to the Deltec time and expense system, and it didn't work as efficiently. But because I rolled it out, I gave 90 days and I used a test, a test group where I still kept the old software live, but I used this test group to, to test for a pay period or two to ensure that the that it was working the logging the creating new accounts because it, it a whole new it was a whole process of setting up new users and I had over 300 users to set up I gave it time I gave myself a good cushion to be able to review any hiccups to mitigate any risks mitigate any issues and to resolve it with a smaller group than having it blow up with the entire company Mm-hmm. So that that is what has worked for me to roll it out in batches. Okay, because one right. of the questions I was going to ask was about running in parallel, and you're doing it in a batch situation. Well, you'll you'll run a batch or a sample, make sure that's working correctly, and then depends expand. on what the software is. Yes, but depending on what, what the software and the function is, that has definitely worked for me. Running it in batches. The issue, my issue with running it parallel is. Having, especially if it has a situation that employees have to put to input things, then that's asking for multiple entries. And then mm-hmm. I have a risk of inconsistencies between two systems. Mm-hmm. So I would shy away from running it parallel or concurrently. But something like a whole accounting system, I would also do a 90-day cushion and run a test site and run a and run a live site, but I would take things into consideration such as cutting it off at the beginning of a year or a quarter, depending on what, what it is I'm changing and trying to stay in compliance with gap rules and stuff like right. that. Mm-hmm. Does your firm have an audit done outside auditors? Several. <laughs> Well, because we also have, we have to have the external one done. And we also, we're also subject to agencies such as DCAA. So that's a separate audit in itself. Separate auditors. Separate auditors, right. So the government will send in their auditors and then we have, you know, our own private external auditors to, that come in as well. Are you at 1231 year end? Yes, we are. You are. Okay. You're on Mm -hmm. a 1231 year end. And I was curious, um, What's the average length of time for the government contracts that you end up bidding and winning? Is the, are they, I assume they're multi-year or is that not the case? They're mostly multi-year. The typical thing is five years and then it's up for a recompete again. 
Oh, okay. And, and I guess there's progress billing based on hitting certain metrics. Is that how you bill? Depends on the type of contract. Um, I mean, there are different kinds of contracts. Some of them are fixed prices, no matter what, it's the same amount. Then you have your progress billings, and then you have your time and material that is based off of the people, the butts and seats and what you bought. And we do a lot of cost plus fixed fees as well. So. So whichever system we pick has to be robust enough to accommodate these different kinds of billings. And yeah. Is that software that helps you do that? Is that part of a, your standard ERP system or was, is that an add-on or a special functionality that you had to go out and buy? No, it's not a special functionality. We utilize Delta Costpoint as well, which is, and they are a leader in the government contracting space, and it oh. has those capabilities. I'm sh- it it eliminates a lot of the manual work that you will probably have to do if you were using a software such as QuickBooks, okay. but it does have the functionality to to accommodate all those different kinds of projects. Do you have, do these contracts have a, let me back up and explain why I'm asking the question. People that I know who have been on government contracts, both federal and local that I know, occasionally the contract calls for a certain amount of women-owned companies, minority-owned companies. Is that something that comes into play when you bid on contracts? Absolutely. It shapes what you go after and it's, it's one of those factors that would help determine the win probability if, if they're more focused. If a contract says we're going to give preference to a woman-owned business or a veteran-owned business, that and the and my company is veteran-owned. So if we're going after a woman-owned business and or a contract type that is going to give preference to a woman, a woman-owned business. The probability that we would win is slashed, I think. But it doesn't, again, it doesn't prevent us from going after it. It's just, is it worth your while? Okay. And how, and do I, you have any feel for how many RFPs you guys respond have to? Outstanding. Oh, we have a whole department that does that. It's quite a few, right. <laughs> There's a whole department that focuses on that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. The last question that we always okay. try to ask. If you had one piece of advice for leaders of modern finance, what would it be? I love that you guys are reaching out to individuals who are not the regular speakers. And it encourages people like myself to to come out and speak more. So I would say, please continue doing so. It gives us an avenue to continue to grow. Well, that's great. Well, we really appreciate you, Dama, being on the show. I want to thank you for for your time. And it was a very interesting conversation. So thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5X faster approvals. 
Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.